for millennia, this area was called Enmokagan. So in the Algonquian Natick dialect, that means fishing weir or beaver dam, which pretty accurately describes the neighborhoods from North Cambridge to the MIT area. What's now Putnam Avenue was referred to as Wigwam Neck. Welcome. Uh, my name is Ralph Waldo Emerson. Perhaps you recognize me from my many portraits. Uh, this is not the first time I have graced this church. Perhaps you were here last time. It was 1837. I gave a speech called The American Scholar, which one of my good friends, Oliver Wendell Holmes, referred to as our intellectual declaration of independence. And in this speech, I attempted to distance ourselves from the colonial days, America's colonial past. However, the past is always with us, even if it's hidden. And the true history of Cambridge goes all the way back to the Puritans, who called this the New Town, and this their first parish. So they weren't the first residents on this land, not by a long shot. There seems to be evidence that indigenous people settled this area roughly 10,000 years ago, and the Massachusetts tribe were the first known to be farming these lands. You know, to continue our archaeological dig here, I think I'm, I'm just going to hand you over to Mary Stack who is Cambridge Forum's executive director. So with that, thank you very much, Mary, for having me, and I'll let you take it from here. Thank you, Mr. Emerson. A warm welcome to everyone. As our esteemed speaker has alluded, there are many layers to this city's history. Today, we hope to chart some of the other cultural influences and the events which shaped this area. And to aid us in that excavation, we have three specialists to fill in the gaps in what would otherwise be an inaccurate and incomplete account of the story. First, let me introduce Suzanne preston Blier, Harvard historian, who's just written a new kids' book entitled The Streets of Newtown, A Story of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Joining her to help amplify our understanding of Newton's diverse and multicultural past are Nicola Williams, a cultural activist who runs her business out of a historic boarding house once owned by former slave and abolitionist Harriet Jacobs. Completing the trio is Sage Carbone, indigenous scholar and descendant of the Massachusetts tribe. Suzanne, let's start with you. Who did you write this book for? I felt very strongly that we needed to find a different way to teach about history to young people going forward and um, to revitalize the diversity and the different voices and to give them a sense of the passion for history. So that's, that's where I came to this project. So perhaps you could give us a, a more complete sort of backstory starting 10,000 years ago because you break the book into chapters and it's all chronological to present day. So the records show that the Massachusetts tribe were the first documented inhabitants in the area, and they farmed and settled, correct? Correct. And I was so fortunate to be able to uh, work with a tribal council leader from the Massachusetts, Thomas Green. And in the end, he and I co-authored a section on the history of the Massachusetts here. And um, in my research for this book, I hadn't seen that this particular... Uh, story had been told, so I felt it was really important to do that here. And I've gained such respect for them, um, particularly for the female leader, Scott Satcham, who 
inherited the chieftaincy from her deceased husband and was here at a moment of real crisis and difficulty as disease had uh, penetrated the area, many people had died out, and there was competition to find a place in what was the vacuum of this area. And she did it with, with great dignity and, and enormous skill. And I see her as one of the, the most underexplored diplomats, really, anywhere. And the Massachusetts did various things. They were great traders. They, they went up the Atlantic coast, negotiating uh, across a broad sphere. And that takes skill, economic skills and diplomacy. And um, they were also fisher and agriculturalists. And in the chapter that I deal with on their presence here, I look at how they are planting not only the three sisters, the crops, but also fish to provide a kind of fertilization. And I played off a bit with, well, what's it like for a fox to be running through that area and smelling of fish going in and wanting to steal it? So I, I try to make some of these various scenes interesting. But I go from there to the Puritans and the contestation between Winthrop and Dunster, Dunster who had founded the new colony here because it was inland, so there was less risk of pirates. And uh, a little bit on a hill, there was fresh water. And then this is going to be the capital of the new uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony till Winthrop decided to leave Cambridge for Boston and not build the house he was supposed to. So that kind of debate. I, I include the, the key women from this period, Anne Bradstreet and, and Hutchinson, and then we move forward through the time when um, actually foreigners come in and many of them are large landholders involved in the slave trade. And I felt it was really important, even at this age, to address that part of our history and to do it in a thoughtful way and, and balancing that with really positive scenes of what African people of African descent have, have offered here. The complexities around the Civil War um, feature in, and I even have a, uh, an image of Mr. Uh, Emerson uh, in, in the book, standing in front of the Longfellow House. It's a real pleasure to meet you, sir. I, I didn't think that I was going to ever be able to. But, oh, thank um, you for having me. I, yeah. I wouldn't have missed it. And, um, and then on to today, we're, we're, we're struggling with some of the same issues, right, of people coming in and, and issues around space uh, and use of space and the environment. So, Sage, after the Europeans came and colonized the land, which is like the 1630s, um, they brought conquest and their diseases to the region. First, can you tell us what happened to the indigenous people during this period? And then the signing of that land deed in 1640, which to me seems a pretty paltry price. Absolutely. So the uh, Massachusetts did live here first and shared the land with other tribal nations that used this space to hunt, fish, and to travel through. Um, some of the other tribes were the Wampanoag, the Nipmuc, Narragansett, uh, all the way up to uh, Abenaki, uh, up in what's now known as Maine, but at the time was actually part of Massachusetts as well. The land that we now call Cambridge was purchased for 21 coats. It was one for each winter that uh, Squasichum was expected to be lived, actually. Uh, 19 fathom of wampum and three bushels of corn. Um, and I learned that uh, one fathom is six feet. 
So that's 114 feet of wampum. And just as a reference here is about a quarter of an inch of wampum. So picture this 144 feet long made from quahog shells from nearby. So indigenous people here were then, uh, following the purchase, were allotted a very small portion of land in North, what's now North Cambridge and uh, was known as the Great Swamp area. And interestingly enough, that was an area where there was both salty and fresh water. So there was alewives coming in all the way from the bay, feeding the people of all regions in Cambridge. But um, unfortunately, that small area wasn't enough to uh, sustain what should have been a thriving population. So many were forced to move to the different praying towns, uh, such as Natick and Mashpee, um, which were created with the goal of converting natives to Christianity. Can you just explain that in your flow? I don't think that kind of surprised me, that whole thing about the praying towns. Yes, so I think we know that the majority of people who came to colonize this area were either fleeing religious persecution and seeking ways to practice in their own ways and not believing in a monotheistic god in a temple with a structure similar to what was seen in Europe created fear in uh, the people who came. And so there was a big push to Christianize Native Americans Also, that would be a way for them to learn English. The first Bible, the Eliot Bible, was translated from English into um, the Massachusetts language, and that's actually one of the very few sources that we now have to produce some of these direct translations. And I imagine they were resistant to that. Well, as resistant as you could be. Um, Unfortunately, those who resisted were often either killed or sold off into slavery, or were moved from where their homes were already, at least if you moved into the praying town with others, that you would be theoretically with your family and have a reserved space for you. But during King Philip's War, uh, many of the praying towns were actually purged of Native Americans, and they were sent over to both Deer and Long Island during the winter Um, with no supplies in what became known as the massacre at Deer Island. It's kind of remarkable that they flee religious persecution to come here and inflict the exact same thing on the native population. It seems dubiously ironic that they wouldn't see that. The English colonized the people were not treated with dignity or respect. So the conflicts that may have already existed were then exacerbated by these outside forces really using Native people for their own good of many were used as spies to find out information about other tribes and given either gifts of land or assurances of safety for that information, um, though those treaties were often broken. So... You've covered all your points now about the chat. The other thing about plantation labour, I mean, that's something else I don't think a lot of people realised. I I never thought about that being a large source of slave labour 
the Native American population. That was kind of a revelation to me. People who resisted either converting to Christianity or becoming agents of the government's different states, they were either sent specifically to the um, British Isles to labor on the different plantation areas and also used as bodies for different battles in the Pequot Wars and in King Philip's War to aid either the French or the British side, depending on who was trying to um, gain access to those resources at the time. One thing that interested me also was that the colonists dumping the, the tea, the, the Americans, and dissing the British, dressed as Native Americans. Uh, was that to cast dispersion on what they were doing and to make them take the blame? Or what was the thinking behind that? So it, it's pretty interesting. The Sons of Liberty, they were actually members of what became the Improved Order of Red Men, which Cambridge had six different organizations which were only open to white males. There was the Improved Order of Pocahontas that was open to white females, and their primary purpose was to raise money for residential schools. So continuing those same values of Christianizing Native Americans in order to kill the Indian and save the man. So the other thing that I noticed when I first moved here was how little evidence there really was. Apart from place names, which stuck out to me as obviously being Native American, there didn't seem to be a lot of recognition in terms of monuments or things named after anybody who did anything of note. How are you going about changing that? Or is that going to be a 100-year effort? Well, it might be a 100-year effort, but for millennia... This area was called Enmokagan. So in the Algonquian Natick dialect, that means fishing weir or beaver dam, um, which pretty accurately describes the neighborhoods from North Cambridge to the MIT area. The Charles River was the Kennebequin, and that meant meandering still water. And what's now Putnam Avenue um, was referred to as Wigwam Neck, And so with voter support in the participatory budgeting process, uh, residents and visitors can look forward to seeing these translations and updates to historical markers to include different uh, indigenous perspectives from area tribes. So um, the purpose is just not to erase any of the 400-year history that has happened, but just to recognize that the history didn't begin at that time. Okay, Nicola... We need to address another section of unreported history, which is the lives of the African slaves who were first brought here in the 1630s. Slavery was legally sanctioned here in 1641. And during the colonial era, numerous laws were passed regulating slaves' movements and their marriages. Massachusetts residents actively participated in the slave trade, And you are actively working now to restore and mark places with African-American history. So tell me a bit about your business occupying this space that was once the home and boarding house run by Harriet Jacobs. Tell us a little about that, how how you discovered that. Sure. Um, Well, I'm a member of the Harvard Square Neighborhood Association, and part of um, 
part of our job is, is, is um, preservation and history, and uh, that's important to us and, and to share that rich, rich history. So we have Professor Anita Patterson, who has written about Harriet Jacobs, who lives behind Harriet Jacobs' building, and her first published paper was about Harriet Jacobs and the connection to the rub around disobedience. I discovered that just after I moved into the Harriet Jacobs house um, as my office, I was looking for a new office, um, quickly realized that the building had a lot of history. It wasn't only beautiful uh, that needs to be restored, but it, uh, I discovered a lot more about Harriet Jacobs, you know, maybe her spirit connected with me in some way. So all of this sort of connection just made sense to us that there was a reason why it was there and formed a Harriet Jacobs committee and connected with a, a bunch of um, Harvard professors and, and students who are also kind of in their own way organizing around how do we amplify and raise um, awareness about Harry Jacobs. So Harry Jacobs was a, a former slave woman who um, got her freedom by being a nanny, and she ran away from Virginia. Her owner at the time who inherited her wanted to set her up in a cabin, in a cottage that he was building for her to be his woman, his mistress, and he wasn't shy about it. And he literally spent most of his life hunting her down. So she decided that's not what was going to happen. So she um, became a, um, her first way of escaping him was to become a mother of two children, and she thought that he would leave her alone. That wasn't enough. Um, he was still planning to set her up. So she decided she was going to escape, but she escaped within the same town. He thought she was in New York. She was very smart and, and devised a plan to send letters from New York to Virginia where he thought she was in, in um, New York, but she was actually hiding for seven years in a crawl space three feet high, nine feet wide, seven feet deep, and put a, a little loophole in her grandmother's attic, basically. Hot, imagine the heat in Virginia, that for seven years she was in this space. And she put a, a hold so that she can oversee and look over her children who didn't know they were there. She called that the loophole of retreat. But eventually, after seven years, she made her way up to, uh, tried several times, but made her way up to New York ended up working as a nanny for writers and connected with other women writers. It became part of the women's suffrage movement, and they, were, they encouraged her to write her story. She did it under a pseudonym name, Bent, but her story was really about resilience, um, how she, for seven years in a small space, was able to capture... And just, you know, making that sacrifice to be near her kids, even though they didn't know she was there. And just, she tried to publish her book, and her friends were like, oh, the abolitionist lawyer that's uh, it's a white guy, that um, your baby father, we kind of don't want to rock the boat and tell people about him. So 
they didn't uh, want, she couldn't find a publisher. So she's like, I'm going to publish this myself. So she published her book. It did very well. She went to London. She um, used a lot of the resources to give back to Virginia. She went back. But the, how she got her freedom was that her nanny and her baby father, <laughs> um, her children's dad, tricked her slave owner, because back then you could claim, even though New York, there was no slavery at the time, it was, um, but you can claim your slave. So she, he still, her owner still had a claim and rights for her. So she found a way to have her employer buy her for $300 and gifted her her freedom. And, and it was a trick because they plotted it and he thought, it, it, that the, the, her slave owner didn't think about it until afterwards that he realized he was tricked. But Harriet was very smart. She was very resilient. And she loved Cambridge because she ran two boarding houses, one on Trowbridge Street, and she and her daughter ran the one um, where I'm, I'm, my office is now, at 17-story street. And it was a safe haven and gathering place for Harvard students and Harvard graduate students, and many scholars came through. And so you can imagine what the dining table would have looked like. And she was an entrepreneur. She didn't own the house. We, we've been doing our research on her history in Cambridge, our committee. And, but she was an entrepreneur. She ran it and with her daughter. And she's buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery. And interesting enough, we found out that the most visited gravestone in a Mount Auburn sorry, individual, not necessarily like family, but the most visited individual gravestone is Harriet Jacobs. So we need to bring her story alive. We need to tell her story, not only through her book, but through preserving this house that is a treasure right in Harvard Square in our community. And so this forgotten history um, is, is really important to, to, to share. There must be countless stories in Cambridge of other individuals we don't know about that led really interesting lives like that. Absolutely. I'm the organizer of the Cambridge Carnival, which is now, I'm from Jamaica originally, which is 30 years old this year as an institution, and had no idea until I learned about the Harvard History of Slavery project around the vassals and Darby Vassal and his family and how Cambridge's wealth was really built on the backs of Caribbean slaves in terms of the rum trade and the sugar trade and a lot of the, the, the wealth from that came to Cambridge and helped to build the city and obviously the plantation, there was a connection between the Native Americans and, and Africans in terms of the plantations, but those plantations were what fed <laughs> the city in terms of the wealth to where it is today. And that, that history, that truth needs to be told. It needs to be told because history, we're living it every day, um, but if we don't know where we're coming from, we won't have a path forward with truth. With truth. We need to do that. With truth. I just wanted to make a point. There's a new book that just came out I read about um, this week. It's a Yale historian who's an um, indigenous scholar. 
uh, Ned Blackhawk. And he's written a book called The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History. And in it, I'm quoting, he laments the absence of Native Americans in the narrative of American history. He said they played a foundational role in shaping America's constitutional democracy, even as they were murdered and dispossessed of their land. So I think you're proving today that history is best understood as a kind of multiverse of all these voices and influences, and they, we've got to put them back and present, and he's trying to do that with that book. It got great reviews, that book. Has anybody got any questions they'd like to pose, any of our speakers? This microphone is live. Like most Americans, I know a lot more about Frederick Douglass than I do about Harriet Jacobs. And um, I just quickly looked online and found that uh, they were approximately contemporaries. I was curious if you know anything about how they worked together and what their relationship was like. Douglass, a titanic figure in many ways, and I wonder if he was friendly uh, and supportive to uh, uh, Ms. Jacobs or perhaps otherwise. I actually don't know, but I know we have some very notable Harvard uh, professors who are cataloging Harriet's experience here in Cambridge. We have local experts, um, Professor Dean um, Melissa Bartholomew at the Divinity School. She has a class on Harriet Jacobs. Uh, So I think we have people locally in our community who are more experts at Harriet Jacobs happen to have an office there and I'm advocating to preserve and bring her story to life. But I don't know the, the historical connections between Harriet and Frederick Douglass. I look forward to learning more. Thank you. Yeah. That would be a great subject for a film, would it not? A hypothetical yeah. interaction between them. The same, the same with Squanto and Pocahontas in London, reportedly yeah. at the same time, taken as sideshow attractions and there are many whispers of stories of them meeting overseas but they would have never met in America. Squanto was on the Cape and uh, Pocahontas was down in Virginia. So, Anybody else? That was a great question. I was just curious, you mentioned some, uh, some signposts, some markers that might indicate more of the indigenous names for things. Are these imminent or are these hopeful? These are imminent. Do we have a timeline of any sort? So with all city functions, we are on the timeline of the different departments. However, the money has been allocated to add uh, indigenous signage to the street signs, direct translations, as well as adding additional context and updating some of the current historical markers. So there are no welcome to Cambridge signs on any of the bridges coming in from Boston. So why not? And that's actually state property that we would need to get separate permission for. But on city property, yes, the city signs. Next up is to get one of those big welcome to and Mokagan and welcome to the Kennebecuan a little bit about the river um, that divides us two and uh, kind of brings us so much joy. But then the only, the only real structure that has any indigenous history on it besides a, a sentence or two in Winthrop Square is um, in front of the Registry of Deeds. 
and it says that the row of houses in East Cambridge was constructed to keep out roving wolves and Indians. Wow. And that is the total history that is written on that summarization. So I'm definitely looking forward to not even just markers, but historical and cultural centers. Boston has three indigenous-led cultural centers, and it's time for Cambridge to step up. I'd like to thank our wonderful speakers today, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Suzanne Blier, Nicola Williams, and Sage Carbon. So, Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, Mass Cultural Council, the Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course you. So if you want to donate or sign up to our list, please visit the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope to see you all soon.